Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, as the saying goes, the only constant in life is change. Or, as the song goes, the times, they are a-changing. And really, who doesn't love Bob Dylan? This is something that we all are all too familiar with, especially right now. The old normal has been replaced with the new normal, and that will be replaced with some other new normal and so on. Now, not only have we experienced this on a societal and community level, but also on personal levels as well. Now, but if so much of life is change, why really are we so bad at handling it? It's one of these questions I've struggled with forever and probably always will. Why do people in organizations resist change so much? And how can we not only implement it, but better manage and embrace it? All really good questions. And luckily on this episode... We have Sue Harvey of New Direction Strategy. I had the chance to meet Sue Harvey at an event when we could actually get together in person where she was talking about change management. What's and that like? I don't remember. I, I really <laughs> don't know. And as an introvert, I'm kind of liking not knowing. And <laughs> in talking with Sue, we, you know, we had a lot in common and she was especially interested in the sociological or social science approach to change. And it's really funny in our conversation. I, I knew her a little bit, but I didn't know her a lot. And one thing's clear in talking to her, if there's one thing that Sue knows a lot about, it is change. We had a great time talking about her early career, where she was working as the deputy communications director for minority leader Richard Gephardt uh, in the House of Representatives. And if you are old enough to know that reference, then you're in good company. Because uh, when she said Dick Gephardt, I went, what? She was like, yeah. And I was like, what? Uh, you know, and I was at a time when she was working with the new Republican House majority, led by Repu- uh, Representative Republican Newt Gingrich. You know this contract with America. Mm. And it was at a time when, when the Washington was changing from the Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan getting together for drinks to the tribalism that we see today. She was there for that change, and then she changed to go out of that to work with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Massachusetts. At a time where healthcare was changing and trying to navigate the changing waters of the healthcare system. And we talk about, you know, convince me why healthcare insurance companies are not uh, evil corporations everyone thinks they are. So we talk about that. And we also talked about how she now finds herself working with organizations as a strategic thinker, as a change management expert. And as a coach in her company, New Direction Strategy, and what that change was like working with government, nonprofit organizations, and now working on her own with corporations around how to manage change. I love that spectrum. That's so interesting. It's, it was wild. And we also talked about her winning the Wonder Woman Award from the Massachusetts Women's Political Caucus and the disappointment when she realized that did not come with an invisible plane or a golden lasso. Oh, man. I, I know, that. right? But I, I was not sure if there was a Wonder Woman outfit involved. We didn't get into that. Fair. There's a lot to cover. A lot of interesting conversations. Sue's had an amazing career and continues to. So we hope you enjoy the episode. See the black and 
Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the reason why we do this, because especially right now during a pandemic, we need something to do that's fun and distracts us from the routine of every day. Yes. I, I hesitate to call it life because it doesn't feel like life anymore. No, it's some, <laughs> I don't know what it even is. Right. But here we are living it, so to speak. So I, I, it does make me think as a sociologist, at what point is it no longer the new normal and just the normal? It's just no, I know. Well, as it goes on, I mean, I feel like each season, it used to be that each new season felt like a big transition and a new thing. And now it feels like we're even getting used to transitioning, transitioning between seasons in the pandemic. So even that is becoming normal. And, you know, when we have to get out our winter clothes and we're all still stuck in our houses, you know, it'll just be more just regular. We'll just be ready for it. I was I was uh, shopping recently for um, I needed some different dress shirts and the person at the store said, do you need any pants? I said, nope, nope, don't need to wear pants. <laughs> Top only. <laughs> pants are not requisites. Pants are not required. That's going to no. be like the, the theme of 2020 it's, pants optional. No pants required. <laughs> right. It's, it's really true. Because like, what am I going to do with pants? What do I need those for. No, I, I, I you know, that the story of my life was that um, right before the pandemic hit, I bought a bunch of dress socks. Oh, <laughs> which are still have the tags on them? They, I mean, I, I washed them. I like yeah. literally never wore. I've, I've always I've, every time I open my drawer, yeah. and look at these dress socks. It reminds me of my lack of sense of timing. Yeah, yeah. Well, if that's your biggest bad thing that you did before the temp pandemic, that's pretty good. It's all right. I mean, you know, there's there's been greater regrets, but that that you know, it's yeah. one of those that right up to you know, every day I'm reminded of right. it. Right, you just see it. Yeah. So my pants hanging up, my dress socks. Both things that during a pandemic are not required. Right. Vestiges of, the, of your old life. I think so. And one of the things I was looking at was you've had an interesting career. Yes. Do people, don't, do people know this about you, your career? I, I don't know. I mean, I, t I, t you know, I tell stories when they come up. But. I mean, you were, you were on Capitol Hill. Yeah. During like this. I don't know how you describe it. I guess it depends on which side of the spectrum you fall. But right. you were on Capitol Hill when like basically all hell was breaking loose in the late 1990s. Yeah, during the last impeachment. Yeah. During the last impeachment. And then Denny Hastert, for those who are listening, yes. you know, you were the, the direct, was the deputy director of communications for minority leader Dick Kephart. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I remember the day, it was a Saturday that they voted... I think they were they were like Newt Gingrich had resigned and then there was a guy in between whose name I can't remember. And literally within a couple hours or something, he also turned out to have some peccadillos in his background. And Are you so talking about Denny Hastert? No, it was. And then they went and found Denny Hastert because he was sort of. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, and I was out at an outdoor market and I ran into a congressman from New Jersey and I worked for a senator from New Jersey. And we were just talking about they can't even find anybody. It was the, it was a bizarre, <laughs> bizarre time. Yes. And and to see the senators or the the House members who were kind of holding the trial, um, the impeachment trial kind of come over and be on the floor of the Senate. It was it was all it was. I mean, in some ways it was similar to the pandemic and you're thinking, how is this happening? You know, you kind of can't believe your eyes. You can't believe what you're seeing. So, yes, very, very strange times to witness. What is that trajectory to becoming the deputy director of communications for the House minority leader? Because, I mean, technically speaking, 
if that person, if, you know, and it was a thin margin, if Dick Gephardt becomes majority leader, he's third in command. He's third in line for the United States. And you're the person who's his spokesperson. How does, how does yeah. that happen? Well, well, and I should say, cause we, I was there in 2000 and we were trying to take back the house and we did right. was then he would have been the speaker. So we were all very focused on that goal. Um, it's funny the way that I think about that part of my career is I showed up and I didn't screw up and you just, <laughs> there's, you know what those, you know what those yeah, are, there's, that's an important life lesson. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I just, sometimes I would, you know, wade into stuff that I didn't, I wasn't totally ready for, but there was the situation. And, um, so, and I went, so um, I moved really quickly as, as people do in those jobs. Um, I came down right after college and I kind of moved up from, you know, intern and uh, I don't even remember what my first title is, but just sort of aid kind of bottom level aid. And then people left above me pretty quickly. And so I, I don't know, I just kept not uh, getting kicked out. <laughs> well, I don't know if that's an inspiring story or a worrisome story quite actually, because you're, <laughs> you're telling me, I don't know what was going on, but you know, everyone else left. So there I was, you know, being the, well, the person yeah. who's, I guess so. I, I mean, I think it was because come a lot of the craziness of that time. So people would leave to go be like somebody went to be the spokesperson for the Democrats in the impeachment process. So that's why one person left because there was this kind of huge, amazing uh, opportunity. I mean, that's the weird, weird thing about being in politics is disasters become opportunities. And right. Something big happens. You kind of your adrenaline rushes and you're trying to figure out what to do with it. So um he had the opportunity of being part of an impeachment and then I got to move up into his role. So. But you're not, I mean, are you from Boston originally, Massachusetts? I'm from Philadelphia. I grew up in Philadelphia. Okay. So that's even different because isn't Dick Gephardt, Indiana? Where was he from? Missouri. He's Missouri. From Missouri. Missouri. Yeah. So how um, do you end up? So I, I started my first job out of college was with uh, the, the mayor of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which is right across the river from Philadelphia. Um, and I, my family knew somebody in that office. She was running for reelection. So I okay. did um, some campaign work and, and some city work appropriately separated, <laughs> of course. Um, and, and then from there I moved to, I moved down to DC and then there was a, a newly elected Senator from New Jersey. And so I could, I translated the connections I'd made in the mayor's office to the, to getting a job with the Senator. And then once you're down there, the geography matters less because you've got the skills of how to work as a, right. you know, DC staffer. So you can, so that's how then um, I moved over to Dick Gephardt's office after that. So like you say the skills of a DC staffer, what does that look like? For those of us who are not in the world of DC staff, yeah. them, what, well, what does that mean? Well, um, I mean, it, it means, you know, getting calls at five 30 in the morning from radio talk show hosts asking if you can get your boss on the phone in 15 minutes, <laughs> like things like that, that happened. <laughs> I was, I, it was a while after I had left that people would keep calling and I had to say, I am not, I don't, I'm not in that office anymore. <laughs> Stop calling me. Um, but I think just, you know, it's, it's the fast pace. It's what's the issue of the day. It's how do you figure out what the, um, what the press needs and get them what they're looking for. How do you manage kind of what's going on in the office and what the, what kind of your uh, set of uh, reporters is looking for. Um, 
yeah, and just keeping up, keeping up with the pace of it, really, and understanding all the moving pieces. I heard something recently around Senator Kamala Harris, and maybe you might be able to shed light on this, where that someone said as soon after she was elected to be senator from California, <laughs> she immediately started having dinner parties with people from the press. And I just went, is that how that works? I mean, that, you know, you, you, I guess people put themselves on trajectories or tracks based upon when they go to Washington, D.C., yeah. through their relationships with the press. And so yeah. what is that? I mean, for those I guess, of us, again, who don't know what this means other than watching you know, cable news shows, yeah. what is that relationship about in terms of developing these relationships between press and elected officials? And I'm like, what was your job in the middle of all of that? Yeah. Well, it's a really delicate balance, first of all. Um, and actually, before I speak to that, that reminded me of one of my favorite stories, which is a Boston story. So T- Tip O'Neill, when sure. first elected... Um, there are, I don't actually know if there still are, but at that point there were dorms where the freshman Congress people would go for orientation. And he spent the first couple nights going back and forth to the shared bathroom and brushing his teeth and then go back to his room, come back because he ran into people. Every time he went, he would run into somebody. And so he was so well known for his relationships. And that's the kind of thing that he did to just be where people are. And just start building in a very casual way this relationship that had nothing to do with politics so that when he needed to be horse trading or get somebody to change their vote or whatever, he, you know, he had gradually built this foundation of trust that started with brushing his teeth eight times (laughs) in a night to run into whoever's there. Yeah, I'm conflicted about that because I have very strong feelings about people who brush their teeth in public bathrooms. Well, it's that never used to bother me. I'm like, I don't know, is that kind of, uh, yeah, like college or worse? Yeah, it's true. But if you set that part aside, you know. No, it's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting story and, you know, something to talk about as we get to your current work. And one of the things that in, in employee experience that I talk about with my students is, you know, creating opportunity for collisions. And, you know, there's like Zappos talks a lot about this, you know, making collisions where people can come together in unexpected ways that are not structured by meetings to develop these relationships. The other thing I would hear a lot about on Capitol Hill was like the, um, the congressional, whatever it is, like, you know, fitness center. Yes. People taking the tram from one spot to another. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Or in the elevators, right. They all walk over to the votes from the office buildings to the Capitol to, you know, and they're all sort of, they're all going the same place. So they end up funneled together. Yeah. That is, that is where a lot of it happens. And there's a ton of, uh, socializing that happens around it. So there's, you know, receptions and lobbyists are hosting things and there's, there's a whole structure of relationship building kind of, you know, events and things to, to support relationship building. I think it was Chris Matthews who recently wrote a book about Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan. I think oh, really? I, don't know. I hadn't read it. This was before Chris Matthews left the air. I think he was promoting his yeah. book, but I think that the whole point about this was this nostalgia for a bygone era in which people from both sides of the aisle, quote unquote, would get together and, you know, and develop these relationships. And when you were there with Gingrich and, you know, that whole wave of folks, I think it was in 96 who came in. Yeah, exactly. um, Kind of like the, you know, burn the place down ish kind of, you know, mentality. Did you see that? Were you on both sides of that where it was like people getting together and socializing and then this kind of balkanization of, Politics? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I am not 
a historian, you know, I'm speaking from one woman's experience, but I, I think Clinton in some ways be, was the beginning of the polarization for whatever, all reasons. Um, Cause I, my first job was, or my first internship was in the white house in 93. So it was a summer, they'd only been in office for six months and there was so much hope and the whole, the city um, just was kind of buzzing and all young people had gotten involved for the first time. There was just all of this optimism. And then by the time I came back to work full-time, graduated from college, um, we had started to talk about the most divided we've ever seen things. I mean, if, if those people could see this now, they <laughs> right. Well, it's all relative. Right. Totally. But it was starting to be us and them. And it's about me winning or you winning rather than um, how are we going to get something done? And I help you and you help me. So I do think that Clinton and, and then Gingrich, whatever the kind of alchemy was of that time was the start of this split, which has come to a place. I don't think anybody could have ever imagined. Yeah. Well, as a sociologist, we could imagine it, but we're, pretty oh, miserable yeah. people this is why we don't have many friends can you, can you imagine this i'm like actually yeah it's you know. yeah totally i could have predicted it right what what is the art of the answer without an answer so i've imagined you had to do this a lot when you're talking with the press where they'd ask you a tough question or they ask you a question and you have to be evasive but not sound evasive because then that would be distrustful so like what what, what tips can you provide people to answer a question without actually answering the question well I think it depends on what you're trying to achieve. I think you can also say, I'll have to get back to you. That's the best sentence I learned in my time there because it gets you off the phone, gives you time to collect your thoughts, gives you time to do the research if you actually need to, uh, gives you time to reframe the question. So that's one you can always punt essentially, but you have to do that in good faith and you have to come back. So that's one option. Uh, the other one is to don't answer the question you're asked, but answer the question that you want to answer. And, and I've been noticing this. People don't often even say they're not going to answer the question. They just start answering a different question. Right. Right. And I think that's really helpful because at least for, if it, if it, for public consumption, often the question isn't um, in what gets put on broadcast wherever uh, and also, regardless, if you are on video or audio not saying I'm not going to answer the question, that clip can end up anywhere right. else. So, so, but I think underlying this, and that's where this, where this connects, I think, back to the world of experience is that it's really about trust and it's about maintaining the connection with the person and being as honest as you can without obviously betraying your your ultimate purpose, which is to the elected official you're representing. So mm -hmm. I think you can always go off the record and say, I can't, you know, I can't answer that right now. I'm going to get back to you as soon as I can, or that, you know, something like that I think is, is really helpful. And I know in kind of corporate settings too, I've had that used on me and I've used it and I just appreciate it. I would rather have somebody tell me I can't talk about it yet. Right. Then, Hey, there's nothing going on or I don't know because there clearly is something going on and they clearly know. Right. <laughs> right. I think as honest as you can. And if you can't say anything, you just say, can't say anything. And what was that transition to the corporate? Because I mean, it's interesting that you go from working in one contentious environment that has low approval rating 
to a health insurance company, yeah. uh, which, you know, it's like, we, we, we need both. Yeah. We need the government, I guess, and we need health insurance, but people generally speaking, don't love either. It's true. It's true. And they don't love each other, right. which I noticed I went from one to the other. Cause I would sit on the, you know, on Capitol Hill and we would all talk about, we're just going to tax not This is an exaggeration, right. but you know, We'll just make the, you know, corporate corporations pay for it. Well, so then we get to, I get to the corporation and I realize, well, that just gets built into pricing or that, you know, plays out in other ways or they can't implement it because of whatever complexities. So um, I think, and then I'll, I'll talk about the path, but, but one thing that I really appreciated seeing both perspectives is how deep you can get entrenched, deeply entrenched you can get into your own perspective and not understand how things are going to land from somebody else's view. Um, so it's very easy for government to say, we're just going to make a law. It's very easy for a health insurer to say, we're just going to structure the plan this way. So members will have to do this thing. Um, but, and again, this ties to your work. It's not going to be effective unless you think about how's that really going to look outside of this building. Right. Yeah. So, um, do you want me to tell, talk about the transition? I'm fascinated in that because, you know, yeah. I don't have career transitions really. I've been, I've been doing my job for 25 years or so. So yeah. when, you know, when yeah. the people move around to have like major industry transitions, I find that fascinating because it's kind of foreign <laughs> to me. Or maybe yeah. I'm jealous a little bit. Maybe I'm like, that would be really cool. Almost like, you know, moving to another state, you're moving from, you know, working in government to working yeah. for, you know, a healthcare company. Yeah. And it is, it's like a whole different vocabulary and a whole, I mean, some of the, there's a lot that's similar, but then um, the context is so different. So uh, again, I think like the way that I got to Dick Gephardt's office, it's, you know, a series of baby steps. And so um, I moved up, well, I did some youthful wandering in my twenties after I decided to leave Washington because I, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to continue to live in that, um, kind of pressure cooker environment and also where truth was starting to have a lot less meaning. And I found myself being untruthful when it wasn't necessary and it sort of didn't matter. And I, it just didn't feel good to me. So I walked away from that and uh, people thought I was nuts. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe that's a theme of the whole thing of my transitions. Um, and then I ended up in Boston and it was, um, I went back to politics. I worked on a campaign. Okay. 2002. Yeah. So I landed here. Um, I worked for Shannon O'Brien's oh, sure. campaign when she was governor. Yep. Um, oh, against Mitt Romney. Right. Well, we all know how that all turned out. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. So, yeah. And then from there, people I met there, um, I basically connected with the kind of head of external affairs, which includes political affairs at Blue Cross. And I ended up work for him first temporarily, and then um, they created a, a permanent position for me. So, you know, it looks like these major jumps, but there's always the little, the little, little lily pads across, along the way that were um, leaving. And what was that biggest difference between going from working for like one of the most you know, even though he's minority leader, still a pretty powerful position, right? A lot of responsibility. Yeah. Now you're working for, yeah. I think Blue Cross Blue Shield is the largest health insurance company in the United States. 
it is. It insures one in three Americans. Um, and uh, I was working for Blue Cross of Massachusetts, so it's a, it's a essentially a franchise. Right. So it's smaller, but um, um, yeah. I mean, the the scale of the stage is different, right? And the issues that matter day to day are different, and kind of the things that we were tracking. Um, but I think what I liked was still the ability to impact lives at a relatively broad scale. So, you know, if Blue Cross has a million plus members, then, and we're trying to figure out how to address, um, you know, diabetes, which is one of the most prominent conditions among the membership. And so how do we figure out how to make life better for our members with diabetes? So it's not just point of point solution but how are we doing something that will work for everybody how do we see the patterns and what what uh what's the science what's the behaviors that people are doing what's a solution that's going to get to enough of them to make a difference and that is very similar to the to how do you think about government and policy and what's something that's going to really move the needle on the the national population. It's probably pretty hard for a lot of people to envision insurance companies, health insurance companies being altruistic and actually caring about people. I'm not saying that's accurate. In fact, that the question I would like, I'm curious about is what do people not understand about health insurance companies, especially private health insurance? Cause you know, there's all kinds of, I remember there was, you know, this idea of rescission where you have the stories of health insurance companies. I'm not saying Blue Cross, maybe Blue Cross, I don't know. Hiring people to figure out how to get out of policies based on minor errors in paperwork. I mean, things like that. So what do folks not understand, if anything, about health insurance companies and what they do and what the culture is all about? Uh, I think the first thing is not all health plans are created equal. So in Massachusetts, we're really lucky that the three major plans, uh, uh, Blue Cross, Harvard Pilgrim, and Tufts, and Harvard Pilgrim and Tufts are now merging, but um, they're all nonprofits. And so they have a fundamentally different orientation than a lot of the other uh, national profit-based shareholder-driven corporations. So that's one thing. Um, and I would like, I would go to visit my family in Pennsylvania and I would say I work for Blue Cross and people would practically spit at me, <laughs> right? That doesn't happen here because <laughs> it, it has a different um, sense of things. I think health insurance as a whole has been sort of dragged through the mud um, in the last several years, but, but it is different here. And so I think that's one key difference. I, I think another thing that people don't understand is just how much healthcare costs. Right. So is the numbers are astronomical. There's no way around it. And to put the word affordable in front of health plan is kind of an oxymoron, just an oxymoron from where you're starting. But the at Blue Cross, and again the with this is the same for the Massachusetts plans, we're spending we <laughs> see I still I was there a long time. Um, so they spend 90 cents on every dollar out of every premium dollar goes right up back out the door to pay for healthcare for the members. Okay. It's only 10% that is all of the blue cross staff, all of the buildings, all of the, you know, doctors who are working um, with us, all of the online, everything uh, plus any profit, which is 
little and goes back um, to the benefit of the company and then the members. So I think that's another piece of context that's important. It's interesting because right now higher ed is kind of going through the same thing in many ways, just in terms of yeah. people, you know, higher education is so much money. Why is it so much money? I'm like, did you see how much our healthcare costs are? I mean, being on the inside of higher ed, yeah, I can tell you where it's yeah. not going. I can tell you it's not going to my salary. Right. But, right. you know, people right. with this idea right. that, you know, higher ed is, it, it's funny because, yes, there are, you know, extravagances. I mean, I'm at a, you know, a tier two school, basically, in many ways. Like, we don't have, like, a big football program or sports program and things like that. Yeah, yeah. But, but the, the cost of putting on higher education is expensive. You know, healthcare is expensive. And yes, we could talk about the structural issues of how to fix that, but until that's done, it's still going to be expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, because I don't know as much about higher ed, but the, the way the incentives work and like you said, the structures of who pays what for whom and how those prices get set is bananas. And so, and you can't just say it should be less. You have to you have to change the the foundation on which it's built so that it, it can be. It, it, that is an interesting point, right? And this is a point that people always struggle with: is like, how do you affect change? And this gets into like your work now is change management. How do you affect change? Do you sit there and say, you know what, we need to change everything, restructure it, radical, or is it this incremental? And this gets into politics too. <laughs> Conservatism historically was about small incremental change where the idea yeah. of quote-unquote liberal or progressive <laughs> was this whole idea about massive quick change. Mm-hmm. And so here we are in the same kind of conversation in organizations or systems. Higher ed, how do you make it yeah. less expensive? I mean, one way you make it less expensive is that you go to a less expensive school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. I don't know. I mean, there are options. But people want to go to yeah. the school they want to go to. Here I'm ranting like an old man. People want to go to the school they want to go to at a cheaper price. Yes. Yeah. Well, and they don't see, they don't have visibility into what are, what are the line items that are adding up to that price tag? Right. And I don't know. So I graduated from Williams, so I get all the alumni stuff and they talk about the, the tuition pays something, it's something, it's less than half, I think, of the actual cost of educating each student. So if you really wanted to actually charge what it actually costs, it would be double. Which is, I mean, it's mind blowing as it is, but we've, we've, we've got a mismatch and misinformation and it's not even representing the whole thing. So it, something's got to give. I think. It, it, yeah, I think this is where your, you know, your work now with your consulting work, approaching things from a systems perspective, as I like to talk about connecting the dots. Yes. Yeah, yes. Students don't pay. A typical student does not pay the entire cost of the tuition. There's it's subsidized right. who does pay for the entire cost of tuition international students and also dorms. And right now we're seeing the tenuousness of this because if you lose international students and then you lose dorms, now we're, or you lose federal dollars, now we can't give out as much aid. And so students have to pay more. Oh, by the way, the student loans, um, you know, because of policies around the Department of Education, you know, are, yeah. are usury basically. So all these, once the dominoes start to follow, then everything kind of falls apart. And this is what we're kind of seeing wrapping right now because people don't understand that bigger picture. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting because I'm, I'm on a project right now. Uh, it's internal to a company, but it's, but it's 
similarly um, multifaceted, multi-year, the system that exists isn't holding, but to get to a new system is kind of mind-boggling for anybody to think about. Right. What we're seeing is we have to create a balance of what's the ultimate vision. So what is that big picture? What's the thing that we're moving toward? But then also, what do I do now today to move toward that vision? Right. And you have to have both because if you don't, if you don't have the vision, then taking the steps today don't matter. But if you don't have the vi- if you don't have the va- the steps, then you're never going to get there. People don't like just having the vision is too overwhelming because it seems like a fantasy. And I think in healthcare and higher education, we I mean we don't really have either because we don't have what the what the new structure wants to be and what's hard is to have a conversation that involves all the stakeholders and really design something together and that there's just not a a forum for that i mean if you look at um healthcare in massachusetts and how the reform efforts worked there were many things that went into the success of the healthcare reform laws you know going back 15 20 years now and more But one of them was that there were these convening organizations. The Blue Cross Foundation was a big one of them. So, you know, free plug for for them. Um, But they literally gathered all the stakeholders in rooms on a regular basis and they gathered research and shared it. So they created both a foundation where everybody had the same facts and then a forum to have the conversation so that the whole group could both have a specific vision and all felt like it was, it was theirs. And I don't know how you do that on a larger scale at, you know, at, with higher ed or with reforming the healthcare system nationally. Um, and I'm watching, you know, towns try to decide what to do with their schools in September. And it's, it feels like the same thing. We don't, everybody's got a side and a stake and they are clinging to it. Like, you know, like their lives depend on it, which I don't mean to take say lightly right. because it's very real fears. And there's not a holistic conversation about what's really possible and what do we want to get? How do we get there? There's so, there's so, much, in, there's so much important stuff to unpack there. I think the one point you said was, you know, a foundation that everyone has the same facts. It's, you know, going back to the time in you're in DC, Carl Rove, right? Said, you know, we're going to make up yeah. the facts as we, the reality as we go and you're going to catch up to it. Well, that's fine in theory, but at some point, right, reality does exist out there and, you know, things do happen apart from just your perception of it. And the further your perception strays from this objective reality, the more, you know, we call this mental, you know, mental illness because the more delusional you are. So you can walk around saying everything, you know, that, that classic scene in animal house where Kevin Bacon is saying, all is fine. You know, all is well. And everyone's like running by in a, in a panic. Nothing as well. He has a vision, but it's not compelling because no one else can recognize it because it's not this shared set of facts. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the further you are from where, well, there's two things there. One is just the facts are the facts and, and some things are kind of measurable and demonstrable. And then the other thing is that what the collective perception is, 
becomes a fact. It is a fact that people believe whatever they believe. And if you don't start there where they are, you're not going to get them anywhere else right. because you're talking past them. So when you're doing the, the, the coaching and the change management work, then how much of your job is to get the stakeholders to get a shared sense of perception because the people who are at one level or working in one silo might have one perception mm -hmm. and the leadership, quote unquote leadership, might not have any of that, say, that, that same shared, that same sense of perception, right? So they have completely different yes. facts or, you know, yeah. perceptions around the facts. So how do you get them to right. share that? Yeah. Well, so you have to, I mean, you have to get them in the same room. You have to get things on a piece of paper and, and, you know, do roadshows and be actually having conversations and, and bringing one person's set of perceptions to the other set of people. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is focus groups where you just ask people, right? I mean, I'm sure you appreciate this. I love this. You just ask them and they tell right. you. It's very helpful, right? So, and then you can put that together and say, this is, I went and asked them and this is what they told me. And here's what I think we should do about it. It's, it's so powerful and it, it sort of seems self-evident, but it's so easy to lose track of actually doing it. And to me, I think of a lot of the work that I do is kind of keeping, you know, one foot um, in the project and watching what's happening and then the other um, far enough outside of it that I can see the patterns, I can see the gaps, I can see the places people aren't connecting. And that's where I step in to try to bridge it, either having them have a conversation, I gather some data and share it, make a proposal and have them discuss it any of that, but it starts with kind of the broad view of what's happening and where are people missing each other. I was uh, given a, a webinar recently for, for, for my school um, for mm -hmm. executive education or something and talking about basically how do you understand organizational culture? And we were talking about some larger change initiatives and things like that. And one of the questions people asked me was like, you know, like what's like the most, what's one of the most important things here? And I think I said something like, well, the most, one of the most important things is how serious is your leadership and your organization to be committed to this, <laughs> to this thing, right? Because if they're not, Absolutely. then it's just, you know, you're yeah. just talking about this stuff. Like, we really need to do something around diversity and inclusion. Yeah, we do. But do you really want to do what's necessary to make those changes? Or are you just kind of saying that because it feels good? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it's fun. I mean, diversity and inclusion is such a good example. And I actually, um, I think any place where organizations are trying to change, it's so easy to sort of hire somebody and give them the title and then walk away and be like, well, clearly we have this because we hired somebody and they're, you know, doing this job. But if without support, without integrating it into the strategy, without the leadership being visible and public about their commitment to it, um, nothing's really going to happen. And uh, I love the expression, um, strategy is sacrifice. Huh. So serious about doing diversity and inclusion, what are you willing to give up to do that? And until you actually get to that point where you choose it over something else, you're not really living the commitment to that change. It's so interesting because I think one of the things that a lot of leaders, quote unquote, again, using the term loosely, are, will, are not willing to give up his control. 
And so, you know, when talking about employee experience, right, you know, autonomy, mm-hmm. giving, you know, mm-hmm. allowing decision making to happen further down um, the line and, and then giving up that control. A lot of people don't want to make that kind of sacrifice. They want to retain that sense of control for whatever reasons they want to maintain. Right. But then, right. then if that's the case, fine. But then you're not going to accomplish these other things you say you say you want to accomplish. Right, right. I mean, you you have to choose essentially which is more important to you. Is it important to feel safe and like you know everything that's about to happen, or is it important to you to pursue whatever you're committed to? And let people have their input and then see where it goes. And it's, it's scary. I mean, it, leadership is not for sissies. You know, can we still say sissies? I don't, I don't know. know. But we'll find out. <laughs> it takes courage. Right? <laughs> let me know. <laughs> um, yeah, I was thinking, um, I have a colleague who runs an association and has been trying to bring diversity and inclusion to that organization. And he's talked about walking into room he's a white man middle-aged white man um i just called him middle-aged okay anyway <laughs> so he's yeah what, what's he's, that mean that's what i mean sue because i know at my age i'm i'm way past middle age at this point because i'm not i don't think i'm gonna go double, i don't think i'm doubling the time i have right now yeah so so anyway so he's a white man and he has committed to walking into rooms where maybe he's the only one where he's uncomfortable where he doesn't know anybody or he's, and, and that to me, that's leadership and that's what's going to make a change. And what he talks about now is how being in those rooms has created other opportunities because people saw him there or they made a connection with them there and then they invite him to something else he would have never been invited to. So it's, it's, it's hard to know where the kind of courageous choices are, but it's very easy to miss them. And you have, you have to just, I always say that change is a thousand tiny choices. It's are you at every moment walking this walk that you've committed to? Or are you saying, well, I'm not going to, that one feels hard. I'm not going to do that one today. Because if you do that enough times, you're not, you're not making the change anymore. I'm way late to this party, but I recently listened to the book Mindset by Carol Dweck. (laughs) You know, I, 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 I found this book online. I'm like, I'm asking people, do you hear about this book? They're like, yes, of course we've heard about this book. Everyone's heard about this book. It's like, <laughs> I didn't hear about the book. Anyway, so again, late to the party. Um, like with my dress socks, it's just like, right. See, uh, you know, just miss the boat. Up. But now it's a pandemic. You have time to be reading. Yeah, so. listen, actually listening to books on tape. And you know, I'm, you know I'm middle-aged because I said tape. So that's, that's, that's right. I'm with you. That's a yeah. dead giveaway. But this idea right. of the mindset, right? And, you know, Fear, the fear factor of not wanting to be wrong, of not wanting to live in uncertainty, of not of being yes. afraid of un, unpredictable or uncontrolled growth. And by that, I mean that I don't know where it's going to go. You might make the wrong decision. Um, I think most of the time leadership in organizations means being first in the parade. You know, and as I like to tell my MBA students, the reason why they teach leadership in MBA programs is because most managers aren't. Um, you know, it's like, I don't want to be too far on the limb. I don't want to be too in front of things. I don't want to be diverged too much. So have you ever had a conversation with a person in a leadership position and be, and be like, look, you know, may, maybe this isn't for you <laughs> because he takes a lot of heart and a lot of, how do you take somebody who might want to get there, but is just not there yet? 
That's a really interesting question. I, um, I do a lot of work with people who are in career transitions and it is often this, um, split between where they're wanting to get to and where they're almost ready to let themselves go. So I find often if people get into these positions, they have, there is some commitment and there's some interest in some draw, something pulled them there. And um, I've heard coaching described as kind of clearing the way so that somebody can do what they're meant to do. And I guess that's how I, that's how I would think about that situation is, is what's, what's in the way of this person being what they're capable of being. Yeah. And that is, that is you know, we've, we've gotten a lot of saying so far, which I appreciate. I, I'm going to start a side bumper sticker business uh, because clearing the way, how much of what's in their way are things that they put in their way? I mean, it's not like there's, there's a structural impediment, but there's things that I've seen this with people. It's like, you know, the reason why you can't get this done is because you made these decisions to prevent you from getting this done. Sometimes even, unintentional self-sabotage. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, I mean, that's why coaching works and that's why I love it. Cause you can, when you can, um, one of the things we talk about is making, th- uh, making something object. So instead of you being subject to whatever forces are going on, you make it an object. So you can take it out and look at it and decide, do I want to follow that path or do I want to listen to that voice in my head or do I want to turn that one down and listen to something else? And so um, it can be really powerful just to even say to someone, you're saying that you are committed to getting a promotion within the next year. And yet when you go to work, you are I'm totally making sure. this up, you know, in your office, you're not talking to other people, you're missing some deadlines. What do you make of that? And it's really interesting the directions that things can go. And um, everybody has their own answer to that. There's no kind of standard thing that's in the way, but, you know, the connections that people make. And then once they see them, it's so much easier to sidestep them. But before they see them, they're like, they're basically being puppeted by whatever this, these other forces. So they need to cut the strings, right? They, and they may not even know they have the scissors in their hand to cut the strings to allow them to exactly right. It's exactly dance right. on their yes. own. Yes. Once they see the strings, once they realize the scissors are in their hand, it's not a big deal to just go. But there's probably a lot of comfort for people to have those strings attached still, right? I mean, because then you don't, I mean, there, there's an, a, I don't know if you've had this in your coaching, but there's a sense of if I'm not in control, then I'm not to blame if things go poorly. I, I always have an out. My, my, my organization held me back. My boss held me back. My you know, economic situation held me back. I, there's always an excuse of why I didn't succeed. And once you cut those strings, now it's on you. Yeah, if you fail, right. but you succeed. And the chances are better in most cases that you're going to succeed than that you're going to fail in whatever spectacular way you're imagining. But you have to be willing to fail because otherwise you're not going to go out there. You know, Brene Brown quotes the Teddy Roosevelt um, quote about being in the arena. And she says, if you're not in the arena, if you're not fighting, if you're not willing to get hit, these are not direct quotes, but 
then I don't care what you think because you're just bystander and you're just like, you know, throwing things at people who are actually in the fight. And it's so easy to sit on the sidelines, but you're only ever going to sit on the sidelines if that's where you choose to be. One of the things that I, that I've been running in my mind related to that is, you know, fail is a, is a verb, not a noun, because you might fail. That doesn't make you a failure. I mean, there, and this is what, yes. you know, Carol Dweck talks about in her book that it, uh, I'm the last person apparently to read. Um, <laughs> this is this element of, well, you know, you can fail, but the failure stories, and there are some companies who have a fail wall, like, you know, a wall of great failures, not to make fun of people, but to encourage people to say, you're not alone. Most things aren't going to work out exactly as you plan, but you know the the goal then is to identify those opportunities in those setbacks to move forward. I, I real, one of the things in that book again that was really interesting is how you know she asked. There was research done on. Tell me what you think about Alexander Graham Bell. Like, what conditions did he work under? And people like he's working by himself in this lab. You know, someplace you know in a you know, garage, poorly lit, da, da, you know, you like a team of like 30 people that was like federally funded, you know, you know, he's, you know, it wasn't just him doing the thing yeah. by himself, you know, yeah. genius isn't something that just happens. It takes work and failure. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the stories we tell, you know, every, every, the, um, kind of the overnight success, nobody, nobody ever just went to bed one night and woke up successful. That's, I, I don't know of a single one where that actually happened. That's not how it goes. Right. That's not how it works. Everybody's got stories behind them. And we just don't count all the failures or experiments or hard work that leads up to the overnight success. I've heard, I'll give you one more quote. Cause, um, uh, and I'm going to mangle it a little bit, but there's a, a quote about learning a language, which is the, the, the most effective way to learn a language is not to be perfect, but to be bold. Oh, and if you think of, I mean, obviously you're never going to get a foreign language right the first time, but if nothing ever comes out of your mouth, you're never going to learn it at all. Yeah. If you think about how often we still, I, mean, I still mangle English. I've been doing it for like, you know, a while now. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like, you know, a young child, a baby, a toddler doesn't fixate on how many times she or he fell while trying to walk. Totally. No, they get up and, and they say, well, up. I really suck at this walking thing. Um, this maybe, it's, maybe yeah, this isn't for me. Yeah. I might just not be a walker. So how, or, how, how much of your coaching are they like these inspiration, you know, this pulling out quotes all the time and inspirational stories. Is that a lot of it? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I, I, you know, I do collect them because I, I love them. I, you know, as a writer, I love a pithy quote. I love a story or analogy that captures something um, and I think I appreciate it because it lands for people. And so we can be talking about, if I'm talking with a coaching client, you know, we can be going around about something. And then there is a way when you have the perfect little nugget that it kind of coalesces all of the learning. So, um, yes, I am always on the lookout for them. Do you have a calendar? I mean, do you have like a, like that you just play every day is a different saying and you just kind of hold on to them? No, no, but I read lots of right. things and I gather cut and paste. And yes, I have a lot of post-its. How, what's the difference between coaching and therapy? My wife's a therapist. That's why I ask. And, you know, oh, yeah. you know, in talking with her about our clients and she doesn't disclose any private information. So it's not like that. So no lawsuits, please. Yes. But the idea yes. of, you know, trying to get people to 
manage their situations better, right? And this goes back to even like, you know, I can't, I can't control what happens. I can just control my reaction to what happens. How much of your work is actually, I mean, what's the difference between coaching and therapy? So this is a much discussed topic. And I should say my husband is also a therapist and he also doesn't disclose anything private. So I also don't want any lawsuits. Isn't that annoying? But, don't you um, wish they did? Can you just tell me a little bit? <laughs> so interesting. Right. Uh, I don't know. My, I think my life is interesting enough <laughs> without seeing all the other people's nonsense. But um, so there's a couple things. I mean, we coaches don't have clinical training. So um, depression and PTSD and all of those things are really well out of our realm and more specifically taught in our training um, kind of when to draw the line and say that's probably something for a therapist. You probably need a different kind of professional support for that. There are also, if somebody really wants to kind of go back deep into history and kind of unearth something and really dig into that, the kind of back looking, that's probably not uh, a coaching engagement. But there definitely are a lot of overlaps in terms of what are the behaviors you're doing and how could you shift your behavior now to change what your outcomes right. are. And, and we, I mean, well, I work with a lot of, uh, kind of frameworks and sets of questions and um, to help people kind of through a structured process. And there's different ones for whatever people are bringing. Uh, and I don't, I don't know that some of that is work that therapists do, but, it, but it's kind of helping to uncover what is, what are you believing? And then how can you do it differently? So there is, there's overlap for sure. Um, and they are distinct. And I think both um Professions are trained to, you know, refer, cross-refer when needed. Have you ever, have you always been um, a believer in this kind of work? Speaking for myself, for a long time, I looked at like all the mindset stuff, kind of dubiously. I'm like, uh, well, you know, it's easy to tell somebody who's in a really bad situation. You should just like, you know, be positive. It reminds me of the Monty Python scene where everyone's nailed to the cross and they start thinking, look on the bright side of life. I'm like, really? Right. right. Is, it, is it all yeah. about like mindset? You just got to look on the bright side of life while you're being crucified. But I've increasingly become, I've come around more to understanding yeah. it's important for you, importance for you. Have you always held this importance? Was this like a kind of conversion to it? Uh, I think I've always believed that um, the change was possible and that support could make a difference. And that's different than what is now becoming called toxic positivity. Is that a thing? Such a helpful term. Yeah, I'll send you an article. Yeah. Yeah. Because especially now there's so much of, Oh, make the best of it. And Oh, there are lessons and that's all true and important, but sometimes you just got to wallow in this sucks and I hate it. Right. And so I think, and sometimes, I mean, you know, grief, uh, counselors. That's a thing. I'm, I don't think they start out by saying, well, always look on the bright side of life, right. right? They help move through their pain. So I do, it's not that I think, um, you know, shiny happy, but I do absolutely believe that people can change and, and ultimately um, when given the opportunity and the support that they really want to, and that um, the level of connection to 
themselves to other people, to the universe, if I'm going to get really sure. kind of, but to me, I believe it. I feel, I can tell when I'm connected to kind of what else is out there. And um, the more that I can do that and the more that I can help my clients live in that really deeply connected way, um, the better I think we're all going to be. At the end of the day, I think most people just want that, right? They want some kind of connection. We're social animals. We want to feel Absolutely. connected. We want to feel feel seen, appreciated, yes. relevant, yes. all of these things. Yes. And a sense of purpose too. There's a reason why I'm here and there's a reason why I'm doing all these things. And um, yeah, I was, I was thinking about masks and the whole politicization of masks, which I will not get too far into, but a lot of, I think, why some people wear them and some people won't is what's the purpose that they believe they have. Right. And so if, if, if we get the message that we're wearing a mask to protect ourselves and protect other people, to be part of a holistic solution to a, a massive problem, then you're going to go get that. And you're not even really going to worry about if it's uncomfortable or inconvenient or whatever. Um, if you have a different sense of what the purpose is and it's somebody's making you do it and you know it's being done to you you're not going to want to have anything to do with that so i think it, it that sense of purpose and connection can really affect both the kind of contentment and meaning people gain from their lives and also um you know it goes back to managing change and how do you motivate people to do uh, what's better for the community good. One of the interesting cultural commentaries I heard about the mask debate was, I think it was on Twitter. It was a person who was talking about the whole public health framing of wearing condoms and safe sex. And, mm -hmm. you know, the person I think made the point that if you know, you're framing the mask as you're helping somebody else, which for a lot of Americans isn't going to be convincing, you need to frame it as this is protecting you. I uh, you know it's both an interesting take because then it you know help might have helped change the behavior, but it's also kind of a sad commentary that the thing you got to make people think about is how does it advantage me or how does it protect me or why is it beneficial to me versus this larger collective you know sentiment that as a community we have to come yeah. together and do this yeah well, and i think I think you probably can't just say do it to protect other people as the first sentence you have to start with the we're all in this together right then gives people a sense of belonging, which Brene Brown has written beautifully right. about. I mean, that's a whole other topic, but, um, but once they have that sense of belonging and meaning can attach meaning to their actions that plays into that sense of belonging, then I think you can flip that equation. Yeah. It's, you know, it's an interesting communication challenge. I know you have a communications background, obviously, and how do we frame, how do we again, the same set of facts creating that perception that's the same. It's, a, it's an increasing challenge, especially in a world where we have media outlets that are tailored to our own more, most base impulses, right? Where I can yeah. just jump on, go on to the chat room and find folks who may not even be real, who are reinforcing some mindset that allows me not to work hard. Going back to your point, right? You know, you have to, you know, yes. change is hard. You have to make a lot of choices. Yeah. You have to decide that you want to cut the strings. It's easier to yeah. regress back into, I don't want to change anything. I don't want to work too hard. I want to, right. resent, resentment feels good. It's a powerful emotion. Oh, it's delicious. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Like that's another. It's not, it's not a good 
long-term diet. That's a new bumper sticker. <laughs> Resentment is delicious. And <laughs> yeah. there's a place you can find for that. So a lot yeah. of your work then it feels like is trying to get people to move beyond that, the id, and into more of a growth mindset um, yeah. of change is hard, but change is good. Yeah. Yeah. And I might not know what's going to happen. I might not feel safe or stable or comfortable right now, but I have a a belief or an understanding in the ultimate value of this work. That's going to help me get comfort. So I know we're running out of time. I do have to ask this question. When you won the wonder woman award, did that come with a lasso or did you not? (laughs) No, There was no lasso. with a trophy but no lasso i know disappointing what so this wonder woman award from the massachusetts women's political caucus like what 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 is that so that is and that was that's been a little while now but um they give that award to people who are working behind the scenes and making change and getting things oh so yeah so at that time i was working i was staffing the uh, chair of the Rose Kennedy Greenway Conservancy when there was, you know, no, there was no Greenway. There was just a former construction right. zone. Um, and just trying to get uh, all the various stakeholders together to actually get something done and, um, and working on another couple of similar projects like that, just pulling the pieces together, making the connections. So for those who are listening who have no idea what we're talking about, I-93 used to run through Boston above ground, this ugly monstrosity of an elevated expressway. And then that became the big dig, the central artery tunnel, um, which had its own issues. But then once you had the big dig underneath the ground going through the center of Boston, the whole point then was, okay, can we turn this space into a beautiful area. And that's the Rose Kennedy Greenway. And it's beautiful. So it is gorgeous. It's, it's come out um, spectacularly well. So my kids love playing in the fountain when we've gone down that way. Oh, the one that kind of pops up. Yes. And mine is mine too. (laughs) You were, so you were one of the people responsible for the pop-up fountain. Uh, not, I can't take not specific. It's okay. You can we're, say, I, you can say yes. So, no. <laughs> yeah, that was okay. Mine. Well, there you go. Great. <laughs> no, but just in the, in the really early days of how do we even get this off the ground? Um, so some very interesting uh, political and uh, architectural and um, civic questions kind of all wrapped up. And a lot of stakeholders bringing stakeholders together. Many. Yes. Absolutely. And uh, one, one, one of your more risky things I think you've done is that you put the number of fish you have on your website. I mean, fish seem kind of transitory, but you said, so yeah, it's like seven, I have seven know. fish on my website. I'm like, God, that's a commitment because you have to go back and change that and update that. Oh, we lost one, but we added one back. Yeah, it is, I, it is inaccurate. And honestly, I mean, not to get too morose, but our dog died uh-huh. recently or not. Yeah. So now we have two guinea pigs, two fish and three shrimp. So I do have to update. Wait, so the uh, okay, the three shrimp. I've never met a person who has pet shrimp. Well, they go in the fish tank and they, I don't know, clean it or something. This is really my daughter and my husband's department. So I don't know a lot about it, but yeah. there are, um, they don't really even look like shrimp. They're kind of like, I don't know. Do they have names? 
The shrimp don't have names. The two remaining fish have names. But I'm a little hard-pressed to tell you which ones are still with us, honestly. So don't ask me. No, we have chickens. I understand. I don't know what they're... We should, we should talk more about that. I'm, I'm having some lobbying in my house for chickens. They're great. I have no complaints about the chickens. Really? Yeah. All right. No, no complaints. I mean, it was a, I mean the, given the cost of the chicken coop coops that I yeah. had to build... Yeah. to make it like really yeah. nice. These are the most yeah. expensive chickens per pound that you'll find anywhere. Well, that's what, cause my husband just told me the numbers for the chickens and I was like, what? No. And we're going to split with our no, neighbors. They're cheap to buy, but then the, no, no, the coop. The coop. right. Cause he's able to run the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. The coop is, can be like a little bit daunting. Okay. Not that they need a lot, right. but that you start to feel bad. And then you want to make sure that, especially in the winter that they're living in suitable conditions. So Right. Right. I know. Well, our guinea pigs have a trip, a double decker with a ramp. Sure. Got to have that. Housing so we, we've learned a lot. We learned that you have the risky pets with short lifespans. We've yes. learned that you have no, you do not update your website with your, with your pet information. Correct. In my defense, our dog did live for 13 that's, years. That's so. tough. Maybe just recently, like a year ago, we lost yeah. a dog and then we gained one and he, he has a disease that requires monthly daily pills and monthly shots. And oh, gosh. yeah, I know. I'm just, yeah, I'm taking a little break from dogs. We had, she was lovely. She was wonderful. She was part of the family, but yeah. Well, we're all going to need a break from our kids too, pretty soon, but um, hopefully yes. you'll figure out the school situation. Just hoping, I'm just hoping for some, some wisdom and some collective just trust and coming together because we all need it. The kids need it. The teachers need it. The parents need it. And it's an impossible situation. But um, if ever there was a time when we needed leadership and creative thinking, this is it. Right. Well, if we can't find it, we'll have to go back to your, to your sayings that we've got a lot of. Yes. Or we could use bumper or we could use bumper stickers. Well, thanks yes, a lot, Sue. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. We want to thank Sue Harvey for talk for taking the time to talk about her changing career and how we can better manage change. We also appreciate her letting us in on the world of Washington D.C., seeing how the sausage is made. And you know, I think we all can agree sometimes seeing how the sausage is made is not a thing anybody should see. Make sure you check out <laughs> New Direction Strategy for your change and leadership needs, and you'll find that link in our show notes. What are your challenges for change management? What are your strategies for implementing change? What have been the biggest changes in your career and how have you handled them? Let us know how you answer these questions and be part of the conversation at our Experience by Design LinkedIn page. Contribute your thoughts, contribute your experiences. We love hearing from you. Yeah, and I, and I, feel, I feel a little more prepared for change now. You know, it, it's that uh, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm going to stick with meditation also, but now that I can, I can survive kind of across political realms and, and thinking about insurance in a different way um, and management consulting, there, there's a really interesting set of linkages there that, that I think really clarify what it means to deal with change and also to prepare for it on a, on a business level too, right? Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super interested to hear what, what people have to say about how, how they might deal with change management and, and like approach it in their organizations or for themselves. And as always, you can communicate with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That is experience, the letter X, design.com. We love hearing from y'all and we enjoy having your feedback. It lets us know what we want to hear more of. 
uh, what you want us to dig into in the future. And, and you know, again, what topics, change management, innovation, consulting, uh, experience design, theme parks, whatever it is, uh, <laughs> it helps us know where we want to go next. Uh, and so be sure to drop us a line and let us know what you want to hear more of. I'm also excited to let you know that we have hit over 100 subscribers, which is super cool. Uh, so the word is getting out. Uh, again, you can hop and join the party on LinkedIn, invite your friends to subscribe. One of the biggest honors you can give the podcast is to let other people know that it exists True. and recommend it to them. And so word of mouth, I mean, despite the fact that we live in the land of emails and Slack and, and mobile notifications, literally one of the best ways to spread podcast love is to let people know about the show. So uh, word of mask for us. Word of mask, yes, right. Socially distant, uh, you know, word of mask. Uh, but let folks know if you dig the show and and please recommend it to them. It's, it's one of the best ways. And it's an honor for us uh, to get to spread the good word that way. Um, and also, if you want to subscribe and join the EXD community, head on over to our website, experiencexdesign.com, or of course, on our LinkedIn page, which is in the show notes below. Stay on top of all of EXD news. We'll see you next week, everybody. It's been a pleasure. Take care. Bye. <laughs>